Hello, everybody. My name is Maya Rose, and you are listening to another episode of Thorn and Thistle, the podcast where we navigate life's thorny moments involving life, culture, music, and the pursuit of joy in an intersectional context. Welcome back. And if you are new, welcome. I am so happy to have you here on this marvelous autumn day, quickly turning into winter here in Michigan. And I'm not particularly happy about that, but I am happy about pumpkin spiced flavored things, apple cider, and curling up with my cat and a good book next to our space heater because we cannot have an open flame in my apartment. Um, Today, we're not going to do much of a bramble because today's episode is so good good and I can't wait for you guys to get into it. I have, I'm greeted, I am visited, I am joined by the uh, CEO of the new opera company called Opera Next Gen and I'll let her tell all about that. Jamie Sharp is here today. You may recognize her name from a previous episode that we did, The Girls Room, Conversations on Womanhood and Sisterhood, with some friends of mine she was one of those friends so she is a personal friend of mine and she has a lot of really cool interesting projects going on that i want her to tell us all about we have a great chat and it's going to be so good and i want you guys to engage and dig into that as soon as possible but right before we get into that we're going to have a very very short bramble yes we have to go through the ramble as always even though it's going to be minuscule today very short trip Hello, welcome to the Bramble. So today's Bramble, I want it to be pretty short, but I did want to get in. um, If you haven't already heard my campaign for voting um, in an ad form on this podcast, I'm going to say it. I know that some people, especially BIPOC people, have a hard time um, with the idea or the hearing, you know, go vote. And I get that. I totally get it. Why vote and why use a system that is created to work against you i understand that and i understand not wanting to vote however i do think it is still important to vote is it the end-all be-all cure-all for the situation that we're in no do i not want to see another four years of trump in office no matter what absolutely and to be honest the only way that that's going to happen is if people refuse to be apathetic in this election and truly vote. There are so many people who are undecided or choosing not to vote that could swing this election in a more positive way than leading us into another four years of fascism. And I personally think that is extremely important. Okay, soapbox over. As far as the rest of the bramble, I just wanted to say that, you know, you guys may have been wondering where I've been for the last few weeks unless you follow me on Instagram in fact you would know exactly where I've been I've just not been posting and recording for the podcast and I haven't really been promoting the podcast because I needed to take a bit of a brain break and you know sometimes that happens and I am very open about that but I'm sorry if I disappear off the map from time to time I really do want to keep a regular schedule but sometimes my brain and my you know energy levels have different plans and in this particular period of unrest I think it is worth my while to give myself a break from time to time so if you're wondering that's where I was I hope that isn't too big of a deal for y'all it's a bigger deal for me I think than anybody else Um, because I 
I have high standards of myself and I really want to be consistent, but I also, you know, I have to take my own advice, give myself rest when I need it and not feel bad about that or not um, feel guilty about that. And that is what I did. Anyway, um, yeah, so without further ado, I will let you get into this great, amazing conversation I had with Jamie Sharp. It is a great time. We just gab gab and talk all things music and our lives. And, you know, guys, this is slowly turning into an opera-themed podcast, and that is not my intention. You know, I talk about whatever I want, but uh, that's just where we're going these days. I'm. If you guys like that and support that, let me know. If you guys want to hear me talk about other things, let me know. Please be active. Send me a message. Follow me on Instagram and message me there. Comment underneath our post. Um... And on iTunes, of course, leave me a review. Five-star ratings, please. But only if you really like it. If you really hate it, just don't tell me. (laughs) Just don't say anything. But if you really like it, let me know. Okay, I'll get out of your way for the main event. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming back to the main segment of the show. Today, we have my friend, a recent friend of mine that I made at the University of Michigan and a recent graduate from the University of Michigan with her bachelor's of music and vocal performance, if I'm correct, and then now has started her master's degree in opera performance at the (laughs) University of Cincinnati at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, which is very impressive, very amazing. She has a wonderful, rich voice that is classified as mezzo but i know that she can sing (laughs) a lot of things um she is a wonderful vocalist and artist she is also very driven very uh has an entrepreneurial spirit and that she she has a heart for activism and equality and equity across the in the world in society and in the arts and that is why we are here today because she has now recently become the ceo of a new opera company called opera next gen we'd love to talk more about that as well as her past and upcoming uh projects she's been very you have been very busy this summer (laughs) jamie welcome thank you (laughs) tell me about Okay, so March happens, we all leave school. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to graduate in May, June? May, yeah, yeah. We all get kicked out, what happens for you? <laughs> yeah, I finished up school in Ann Arbor because that was the plan, I had my apartment. Um, I had a subleaser coming on May 1st because that was the day of graduation. So I packed up U-Haul, moved to Cincinnati, (laughs) Um, and I've been here ever since. And then, yeah, this summer was a lot of kind of a good break from singing, I think, for a lot of people. At first, I was kind of beating myself up about that, trying to finish the semester and feeling like I had to keep motivated. I did my recital in November, so thankfully I didn't have to worry about any of that, Um, but it was like in the beginning in March, we were still hopeful that Chautauqua was going to ha- happen because it was the end of June. And Chautauqua for our non-music people is? Um, it's a huge 
it's I mean, it's actually a city. It's kind of like um, a place where wealthy people like to vacation and there's golf and there's a bunch of activities, but there's a huge music festival, um, which has like an opera company and then there's voice programs, there's band, orchestra, piano, there's theater, there's also musical theater, there's a ton of things. Um, and it's kind of this whole summer long event. Uh, and so that's where I was supposed to be. Um, and we were kind of waiting and seeing, you know, it was all up in the air. Um, and then things like Opera Theater St. Louis started canceling and a lot of the bigger companies. Um, and so Chautauqua did cancel, but we were very fortunate uh, that they wanted to keep it going virtually. Um, and so I kind of took off May and then most of June. And then I was like, should probably start singing again. Um, because I have to, you know, it was very, it was a month long virtual thing, but I mean, we had, you would have like a lesson every day, coaching every day, just like working on rep. I was trying to get ready for the fall. Not that a lot is going on, (laughs) um, but it was a good time to clean up. (laughs) You know, the world has changed how we, um, have like been able to move this year and i think you know it's been you know that is the reason that i'm taking a year off but i i definitely understand like it can be it's tricky right now going into music and i took this long break off and i only like in the last two or three weeks was like okay i need to pull my stuff together Mm -hmm. and actually like start practicing regularly and working on music again because i am by trade, a musician and not an operator for the rental company that I work for. So, you know, it can be hard to get back into the swing of things, especially when things are still so up in the air. But it is yeah. really impressive that you were able to be accepted to the Chautauqua Young Artist Program, um, especially considering that even though, you know, you guys had to continue virtually, you still were able to make a pretty big impact on that program, which is pretty impressive with your uh, African diaspora recital that you put on in August that I saw that I loved. I thought it was fantastic that you were a part of the driving force of bringing African-American written and composed music to uh, such a big um such a big avenue of young singers moving into the professional market. It's just like a lot of singers that aren't African-American aren't exposed to or choose not to be exposed to this type of music. So it was really impressive to see that and also to see you perform. It was fantastic, by the way, as I've already told you. (laughs) Um, How was that experience putting together that music, that uh, recital? Yeah, so it started out being that we were kind of doing these smaller virtual recitals um and on the one i was on of course we had our option of what we offered um and so i was going to do an april day by florence price um and also dream variations uh, arranged by my friend brandon spencer um just you know because there was kind of no theme they just wanted us to do whatever And um, a soprano at Juilliard, Nicoletta Berry, um, approached me and said, you know, how would you feel like if we tried to get, you know, some singers together to do something that's just black music? Um, Because Chautauqua, like a lot of companies, had quite the reaction to Black Lives Matter um, and put it all over the website, made a lot of announcements, um, you know, did the black square thing. Of course. Um, <laughs> but a as a very stamp of yeah. 
uh, anti-racism is the black square. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, as you know, I was one of two black singers there this summer. They are not known like many programs for being super diverse. Um, there was no, you know, faculty of color, no teachers of color there. Um, to really kind of push them to do anything performance wise. Mm. I think that's why nothing kind of happened. They didn't really, not that that's an excuse, but I think that's always a hesitancy around this repertoire. Like how do we as non-black people push that agenda? Um, and so, you know, Nicoletta and I talked about it and I was like, I mean, I love that idea. She she had been at Chautauqua before, um, Juilliard has a very close like connection there. So she knew a lot of the people who are on faculty and staff and knew who to talk to, to kind of get this idea going. And then it was an interesting conversation because they kind of wanted to take it and roll with it as a black lives matter concert, which it was not mm, uh, for a number of reasons. One being that I was the only black person on it. <laughs> um, but also just that idea of like, how do we not tokenize it? How do we start normalizing the fact that we're doing a recital? And yes, we're calling it an African diaspora recital because that's the repertoire, but that's no different than if we were just doing, you know, a, a leader recital or like here's a recital of great American works. Right. Try to make it something more like that. I mean, it wasn't, and we had, you know, a lot of sit down with the singers and discussions on how to perform and program this repertoire, but also a lot about how that's not, that's not activism. That's just what we should be doing. Yeah, like if the, if you put on a recital of all women composers, you wouldn't call it a Me Too recital mm -hmm. um, for the sake, like just out of the blue, it would just be mm -hmm. a recital presenting the works of women composers. And the same thing goes with black composers and artists. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was so thrilled because Nicoletta and I talked about it. I mean, we didn't know we did the recruiting within, you know, the kids who are a part of, I say kids, I shouldn't say that within the young artists, you know, who are a part of it um, and didn't know who would want to get involved. We were just kind of given permission to send an email out to everyone. And we're so thrilled to have 18 singers who all of but like two who had never sung anything by a black composer just be like tell me what you need me to do you know right. give me the music and and i'm on board with it that's the um, best thing i've seen out of this year is the if if not the knowledge it's the enthusiasm from allies of black people and mm -hmm. black community at large the enthusiasm to at least want to try to understand or want mm -hmm. to try to be a part of whatever change, uh, the, the paradigm shift that we are seeing right now happen, especially in the arts. It's just so, it's, it is moving in a way that, you know, I'm not necessarily like moved to tears by it. It is something <laughs> that I kind of expect people to do. And I've been yeah. frustrated, like you probably have. And I know that you have because we've talked about this for a long mm -hmm. time that our, you know, colleagues and peers have seen very apathetic. It, th this, uh, it, it, the least, it's seeming less apathetic. They're more enthusiasm and that excites mm -hmm. me and that makes me optimistic mm -hmm. for what we mm -hmm. can maybe do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I just hope now it, it continues. Right. Because I don't know about you, but that was kind of a big thing in the summer, especially because we were all still fully quarantined. Right. And that was like, what was happening? That was what was going on. And I've already noticed 
the kind of drop off, um, at least here at CCM, as we've started. And that's, I mean, understandable. Life is resuming. I hate phrasing it like that. But, you know, I've gotten a lot busier at school as well. It's hard to keep up the momentum and do all these extra things on the side and balance work and school and just life and self-care in this time. Right. Um, And so I hope that people, you know, keep, keep, keep at it. You right. know, they keep, they keep going. I, um, was at, so we have song literature, which is basically like song class. Um, like you have at Michigan. Um, so for non music song, by the way, for again, the non music, most people actually who listen to this, I know you guys are mostly music people because you are mostly <laughs> people who have been in contact with people that I know who are all music people. I get that. But some of y'all don't know all the terminology. And for the sake of you, I will explain art song is just a short piece of music that is sung vocal music that is not a part of a larger uh, theatrical work like an opera. So a piece, a song that you would hear in an opera is called an aria, an art song is outside of that. Sometimes you can have sets of art songs, which we call song cycles, but in general, the art song is just a standalone piece. There, so a song literature (laughs) class, you learn about art song from uh sometimes they can be french german english whatever Mm -hmm. but you're learning about that particular type of repertoire yeah you have a song Um, literature class at ccm sorry i just i just want to keep everybody in the loop no 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 that's totally fine (laughs) i understand (laughs) it's so it's english this semester and um the professor that teaches it actually saw um the chautauqua recital that i programmed this summer um and we had a really great conversation because he wants to incorporate you know african-american art song as well as spirituals into um his class and so i was able to go actually this past thursday and guest lecture which is really wild um because i look at her (laughs) oh look at her go okay we see you guest lecture next up master class yeah, it, it was wild, but it was great there, you know, because it was less, I tried not to talk at people as much as facilitating a conversation about what do you want to know? What right. is scaring you? What is keeping you? You know, because there's just such, I think, a stigma around the repertoire and it's it's hard. We talked about it a lot. Um, and I think we see it more with Black opera because a lot of Black composers wrote operas specifically for Black people. Right. Knowing that, you know, this was the only way that a lot of black singers would have opportunity. The same way, you know, August Wilson did that with his plays. So it's hard, you know, even as a black person to feel like, you know, I feel really connected and very passionate about the repertoire, but I want to share it. And I know that the only way that it's going to continue to be around and continue to just appear on performances and that we'll hear it is if, our non-black colleagues uplifted as well. Right. You know, and and there's a way that you can do that without taking it and claiming it as your own. And I right. think that's what people fear overstepping. And so we were able to have just a great conversation about, well, how do I even pick, you know, and just the fact that with a lot of art song, I mean, Chautauqua, perfect example, none of that was about the black experience. Right. There's so much repertoire that like, you know, an April day by Florence Price, just about a nice April day. Like we love April. Right. We love the sun, the breeze. Like, 
And so there's so much stuff like that, but it just happens to be written by a black woman. Mm -hmm. And that's like kind of the stuff that we need to focus on. Um, That is the stuff that black composers almost intentionally just making art, just being black and making mm -hmm. art. You know, I had um, somebody posted, somebody I went to uh, undergrad with posted on Facebook recently, like that they, this, he's a white man. He decided that uh, critical race theory should not be included into musicology classrooms because what's the point of telling people that it's a black composer? Why can't we just say that it's a composer? Which is something that we hear a lot when we talk about uh, color blindness and people saying like, oh, I don't see color. Why can't we just all be human beings? But the fact of the matter is when a black composer writes something versus when a white composer writes something, the black composer even unconsciously is scrutinized as a black composer and not a composer mm -hmm. first, as a black artist, a black person before they are seen as an artist. So when we look at doing and putting on these works and presenting these works by black composers, of course we have to talk about the fact that they are black, but that does not mean that everything that it, we do is uh, a closed sort of culture. There's mm -hmm. a lot of space and I think black uh, artists intentionally, I know that I do, and I know that you do, intentionally create avenues where there are some closed spaces and then there are avenues for cultural appreciation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is only, but there, I know that a lot of my white and non-black colleagues are very fearful of either doing or saying the wrong thing, like doing it the wrong way. And mm -hmm. I try and assure people, like even black people, are um, are can be can fall prey to anti-blackness, you know, mm -hmm. even in performance and in mm -hmm. art and uh, these presentations. So the worst thing that you can do is not try to understand, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, not at and at least not even try to think about the topic and just yeah. shy away from it because you fear you're afraid of doing something wrong. The best yeah. thing to do is just to go for it. I think, and I think that you having those conversations with your colleagues and with your peers is so important um, for the greater for the greater good of mm -hmm. this cause. And the comparison I like to make a lot, especially in terms of spirituals when it comes down to the dialect, because right. everyone gets really scared about that, is just like, I mean, I don't speak French, you know, like I don't know inherently what an OE nasal sounds like. I'm yeah. still not comfortable with that. I you know, learn a French piece, I work on it, I coach it with someone, and I learn, and I adapt, and I overcome. And it should be the same way with this repertoire. You know, if you've never sung a spiritual, find someone who can help you coach it. And then that was another discussion, you know, of how I at CCM have made it very clear that I am more than happy to welcome to welcome these questions, you know what I mean? Come and, and hit me up, come and approach me, and I will get you in contact with someone who is qualified to coach this repertoire, because right. I'm not a coach. Yeah. But I, I will help you find to note that not every Black person, yes. not everybody who is a part of Black culture, not everybody who was birthed from a Black person knows everything there is to know about yes. the technicalities of black musicality and artistry just as much as and history just as much as not every white person knows how to sing Bach right you know yep. like these things are all learned and I tried to tell people this they're like oh well 
can a white choir sing a spiritual? And I'm like, of course, but you need to just know how to do it. You spend mm -hmm. years dedicating your lives to learning how the nuances of Bach and Mozart. But when it comes to these spirituals, a lot of people tag them onto the end of programs as sort of like fun, lighthearted pieces. And I, I had one of my choir directors at the University of Georgia during a conversation about this very topic tell me that it didn't matter how choirs presented black music because you know you interpret Bach the, every way that you want, which is just, as we both know, not true. You can't just walk up and do Bach wherever you want. I mean, yeah. you can, but you can't be surprised <laughs> when somebody who knows what, what you're supposed to be doing is like, whoa. Yeah what is all of this <laughs> it's the same way as like when you walk up and you do a spiritual uh wrong <laughs> technically and stylistically wrong you cannot expect that uh black people who know what it's supposed to sound like aren't going to say hey that was not that wasn't it you know yeah yeah that actually came up um in our conversation with the class, someone talked about how they were in a white choir that always did one spiritual at the end. And just kind of things like that, mindfulness and programming. Like if you're putting it at the end, are you recognizing why you're doing so? Are you exploring any repertoire that, like choral arrangements that aren't spirituals that are by black people or by non-white people? All of those kind of things. Um, I think are really important to look at as well. So, but yeah, I agree. Like not, I'm not an expert on this repertoire at all. I just like it a lot and I'm happy to share what I know, but I tried to make that, you know, very clear to the class. Cause admittedly at first when I was asked to do this, I was taken aback because I mean, there are other master's students in there. There are doctoral students in there. I'm just, you know, I'm in the first year of my graduate studies. Right. Um, I'm a lot further behind than a lot of these people. Um, I really don't have any of the tools, you know, in terms of teaching to be lecturing to a class. Right. Um, but that's why I kind of tried to go at it from more of facilitating the conversation on what they can start doing to make this more comfortable. Even with the professor is like, this is great that we had black music week this week but next time you know try to just sprinkle it throughout if you're going chronological order just go chronological order and throw black people in as you go like yeah. we don't have to have this odd kind of like week where it's like yes they must fit somewhere it's here like in hairspray where they do negro day <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. and, and the amount of times that i have you know Black History Month is very important to black people, just mm -hmm. as many history months are very important to the communities that they support. But one mm -hmm. thing that I've noticed is that people, when you put a spotlight on a community, like the black community, for a short amount of time, they're like, after you know February 28th, let's wrap it up. Let's move right along. Yes. We do not need to talk about it ever again. And if we talk about it, they're like, oh, well, we'll talk about, we'll do that in Black History Month. Why don't we put mm -hmm. that to Black History Month? You know, we are relegated to a segregated section of history classes and of knowledge. And I think that, you know, this idea of sprinkling it out throughout the curriculum is something that so many educators need to understand is that this idea that like, yes, you're honoring it by you, you, or at least the perception that you're honoring it by setting it aside and putting it mm. sort of on a pedestal. Sure. That has its, that has its merit. Um, 
but I think what would be more useful is normalizing it because it is very normal. Um, and even I, I've learned so much even since coming to the University of Michigan about how much black, how, how, much, how much music is out there by black composers, how much art is out there by black artists mm -hmm. that I had no, I had no concept of before, you know? And so it's a learning opportunity for not only non-black singers and artists and professors, but also for the entire community as a whole. For um, sure. So, I, yeah, super exciting to see that you also, you know what, I think it's I think it's very inspiring. You are a very inspiring person in that you have something about you that makes people want to sit up and listen. You're very oh. you are very. Um, oh, what is the I don't know what the word it is I'm looking for, but there is really something about the way that you talk about something that you're interested or passionate about that is just so uh, compelling. Oh, um, thank you. It really makes people want to draw in and listen. And that's why I think that maybe you were picked for this sort of thing instead of a doctoral student or whatever, mm. because you have a conviction about you and you have a desire to really make an impact in this particular area, really talk and expand and in invite people into the conversation that mm. is apparent when you speak with you. And so, you know, I think that is the draw. And I think that's what makes you such a great candidate for these sorts of things. And it also helps that you are open to this sort of attention. Because I find mm -hmm. that I have found myself in a similar position of uh, sort of being the spokesperson for black person. And a lot of times it makes me kind of uncomfortable, which is why I have created, part of the reason I created this podcast is mm. to uh, give myself um, the authority on what is my, what the narrative is when I mm -hmm. talk about these sorts of subjects. Mm. But, um, you know, putting yourself in the, that position or finding yourself in that position and then sort of wholeheartedly accepting it is a sign of strength but also and, and of courage. And, you know, and it is very vulnerable. So I think that mm -hmm. it's very commendable and inspirational that you do things Thank like this. You. Yeah, I actually had a great conversation with a friend about this um, the other week is just also knowing, balancing it. I think because I've been doing a lot of this kind of work lately. I love it. Mm -hmm. But I also can't do that to myself where I correct everything that I'm seeing. A big mm. thing about CCM, you know, <clears throat> I love it here. But there's all the faculties white, all the coaches, all the choral faculty, all yeah. the teachers, the directors. Um, there a big are... difference from the University of Michigan, which is... Yes. <laughs> culture shock it we have kind of done a sort of flip a flip yeah <laughs> <laughs> where um you know i i went to such a, a a music program in my undergrad that was very white yeah and moved to the university of michigan which if you guys don't know the school of music theater and dances particularly the vocal department uh faculty and students there's actually a pretty significant amount of non-white mm. students and faculty well they just have such you know black excellence like in their history yeah recruitment throughout the years that they and just they really are. and they make that very apparent particularly yeah. the faculty of color make that mm. very much a part of their um 
their sort of drive and purpose yeah. for being in the professional sphere. But uh, and then sort of t moving from that environment, which, you know, has a lot of areas to criticize and mm. we could talk about that all day as well. But uh, moving from that sort of atmosphere into an atmosphere where you do sort of become the token in a lot more ways than one, I can imagine that can be um, a culture shock, if nothing else. Yeah, it's just, I, I guess I forgot. I mean, never did I go to Michigan thinking that my two best friends would be biracial women who were also voice majors. Like that is something I never thought I would say coming out of this college. This is the two women that you performed your recent concert for yes. a cause, Heart of a Woman recital with, which I also saw. Also thought it was wonderful. Thank you. It's available yeah. on Facebook, I think still, and also on YouTube. Yes, yeah. Um, and we did our junior recital together as well. And it was also um, all African-American art song. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting to go from that and not that we, think the same way but you know when something happens in the classroom and you can kind of turn to someone and you just give that look and you just know what's up I forget how differently I hear everything in the classroom as compared to others right. I mean and that and that just go I mean it goes in line with so many things but like we were learning about method acting in our opera workshop class and I was just thinking about how oh none of the you know people in this video are people of color. And then I was like, I don't think I know any black method actors. And then I was like, I don't like black people can't, I mean, we can't do method acting. Like I can't, you know, pretend that I'm having whatever kind of episode in like a Walgreens and start throwing things off the shelves. Like I would be gunned down. Right. Like method acting is literally not accessible, but I'm sitting in this classroom where that that only you know applies to me that i've right. been sitting here and i'm like we've been lecturing on this for three weeks and like i can't like none of this has anything to do with me like we're doing you know the typical shankarian theory like roman numeral analysis and i'm like right. oh yeah let us not forget that shanker was a white supremacist and put this in place so that non-white people you know their music you could literally analyze and be like, oh, well, this isn't music. It doesn't follow, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's not good music. Right. And it's just, I forget that other people don't know that. And I try, you know, to be more empathetic. When you contextualize it, you're able to see, okay, not only, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have to study something, but it does mm -hmm. mean that you do have to understand that the reasons why you might think that that is good and something else is not has you know is intentional was purposefully uh created yeah yeah and also just like i mean even in i'm not a i'm such a weird weird in that way like i'm a pretty loud person you know this but i can also be very quiet in a lot of situations and i think I you're discerning when it comes to uh like how you use your words and when you speak Yes, it's, I mean, exactly. And I just find myself editing so much in my head in a lot of these situations that I'm mm. exhausted and I just stop speaking because I can't, I just can't handle the situation anymore. I'm just in my head, like running everything over 800 times before I answer a question. And right. by that time we've moved on. Um, and I'm trying to give myself a break from that a lot that I don't have to always explain to people why I feel a certain way about something 
um, why something isn't sitting right. I just know that it's not sitting right. They know right. that it's not sitting right with me. End of story. Like, I don't always have to give such a long backstory to it. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I think that even, like, kind of wraps back into, like, the repertoire. Just, like, just do it. Like, when we're studying spirituals, like, we don't need to always connect that to enslaved people. Like, we can just focus on the music. Like, everyone yeah. else, we're just focusing on the music. Like, I don't know the history of Strauss's life. Like, I'm doing, you know, Strauss yeah. right sorry not sorry like i don't i probably should you know but like girl it don't matter okay. i i was in a i was in a a webinar with uh lawrence brownlee recently mm -hmm. and somebody asked him you know like in all of your studying of music and all of your like time in school preparing for your professional career what was like the most least useful thing and he was like music history <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, but he went on to say it in a much nicer way but mm. i you know there's a lot you don't need that to feel and ex and it, as an mm -hmm. artist as a vocalist in particular you are sort of a vessel through mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. people can uh, through uh, interpret music and hear yeah. and un and experience music. So you have your own interpretations, you have your own understanding, but what the people hear and understand in the seats can be very, very different. You know, I sang a vocalese for one of my, like my junior undergrad recital, and that was the most popular piece and they had zero words to it, but everybody had their own interpretation that they placed onto it and I had my own interpretation singing it and it was all very very different and so mm -hmm. when we're approaching music of any kind of music it doesn't it matters how you're coming to it of course but also at the same time it only matters to a point mm -hmm. um how much you know about the background of the composer only matters to a point there's only so much of that that you can actually put into your performance that can mm -hmm. actually come across to an audience yeah so yeah i mean the music feeling and being uh lending yourself to the music is i think one of the major parts of doing this work yeah yeah for sure and then also reminding myself that i sing other things as well you know like yeah. i love singing this rap but like I don't have to feed I, I feature it on most of the recitals I do because I love it, but that's also okay if I don't. Yeah. And you know, they, I, I, when I was speaking to Julia Bullock on this show, you know, she was talking about how she has become sort of like the activist singer. And I've read mm -hmm. so many articles where people have written her as the activist singer, but if you look at her work, she does probably like, I think if any, if you could c categorize her in any way, she does a lot of new music. I think mm -hmm. if I was looking at her life, I would look at her more of like a, a sort of ambassador for per, like doing newer work or an mm -hmm. art song, you know, and newer opera and op art song. However, she still gets sort of she gets pigeonholed in this way. And they do this to a lot of black uh, singers who, you know, talk and speak up and regularly perform music by black artists, they being the greater society. Uh, the greater white society, I should say. The, uh, this idea that, like, because you are doing it, this is all you are. Mm -hmm. I remember my my sophomore year of undergrad, I told my voice teacher, I will no longer, I will not be doing spirituals all year. 
And he was like, well, why would you say that? And I was like, I don't want them to believe them being the other white faculty members. My voice teacher was the only black faculty member uh, on the voice department. And I was like, I don't want them to think that's all I can do because mm-hmm. I know that they think that already. So I need yeah. them to know that I am more than just this. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was trying to detach myself from this music because I love it. I truly do. But it's just, it it takes You're more than that. I am yeah. more than that. And we yeah. as uh, artists are more than that. So it's in, important yeah. that people understand that. It's a, it's a part of you. It's yes. It's a part of us. It's not all of us. Exactly. I mean, and that goes right in line with like, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me if I sing Summertime for Poor EMS, which is not even my repertoire, mind you. You know what? <laughs> Hot. <laughs> you that's know, a whole other. I'm, I know, gonna, I'm just going to say, like, let's just stop doing Porgy and Bess. I said it. <laughs> no, I mean, let's we, just we act- put it on pause. Yeah. Hiatus. And let's do other stuff. There's yeah. other stuff. We talked about this in my musicology class. Um, this it's protested musicology, but just this idea about reclaiming art. And it, it's a white professor, you know. And she was kind of like bringing up the fact of poor EMS. But I, I, there is no reclaiming poor EMS. It was never ours. It never will be. Yeah. And I, I think if we're gonna keep doing it, we need to focus on the way that it is performed. But more than that, like you just said. Let's focus on just doing actual black opera instead of just there's, being like we did. There's so Bass, much. There mm-hmm. There's so much that I've learned in the last year that is out there mm-hmm. that I have never learned about. And, you know, in general, in our education system, we don't learn about these different contributions that black people have contributed or mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus people have contributed, mm-hmm. which is a whole other conversation in and yes. of itself. But like we don't talk about all the contributions. So I didn't know, they didn't know. I've only just mm-hmm. learned about this. And I'm like, why aren't we talking about all of this? Why why are we not performing Blake by uh, by Leslie Adams? Adams why yeah. are we not performing Trumanisha? Why are we not, pre- they're out there, you know, mm-hmm. these, these works. So, you know, it'll be exciting when the Metropolitan Opera comes back on maybe in 2021, 2022 mm-hmm. season, because they are planning to do Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Yes. And that I think St. Louis did a year or two yep. ago. So I'm interested. I really want to see it. But of course, I'm broke. So I probably won't just <laughs> like I, I always just kind of see the clips and read the stories because it's mm-hmm. opera is hard to watch online. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, moving into another conversation while we still have a little bit of time left, mm-hmm. I really want to talk about um i think opera next gen is a really good name and uh for the theme of what i want to get into the next generation of opera coming out of this coronavirus crisis this Mm -hmm. pandemic this time where we've all been like relegated to our homes and had to sort of reflect on the world around us and society as a whole has been extremely valuable but it also has allowed us to like um, sit and wonder and really imagine what we're what we want it to look like after all of this is done what we really mm-hmm. want the world to look like and be like and feel like and especially in the arts when you have all of these big opera houses giants just c- canceling their seasons for one two years in a row mm-hmm. it's i mean it's just major so yeah. and you know coming up in this industry 
we are both very young. We, every time you go to an audition and you tell them that you're 23, 22 years old, they're like, oh, yes. you are baby. You are yeah. a child. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. We're both very young. And a lot of young people, though, especially people who sort of are either straddling the line of Generation Z, millennial, or just mm. all the Generation Z people coming up, have this desire for change. And opera as a industry and as a tradition is very rigid. It's very- uh, rel- it's far behind. It's so behind. And it's really unfortunate because I think I've gotten so much out of doing and learning and performing opera, mm-hmm. opera that is progressive but in a, so many ways, it falls behind socially and even sometimes politically, a lot of the time mm-hmm. politically. And so, you know, what led you and your colleagues to sort of work on this project, Opera Next Gen, and what is it? What does it mean to you? So I guess I can kind of, do you want me to explain how I got involved? With yeah, you just start from how you got involved. and okay, yeah. yeah. So um, I saw a post uh, in the Yak Tracker group, which for non-music people, that is a group on Facebook um, that a lot of young artists are involved in. It's a hush-hush group. It doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. If yeah. you're a director, if, you're, um, <laughs> if you are an opera company owner, if you certain people, it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was a baritone who posted on there that he was thinking about starting a company. And I had no intention of taking this large of a role. Um, I yeah, was this is like, quite quite an undertaking, especially, again, for somebody our age. Um, <laughs> this is something that shocked was shocking to me. And I feel like, you know, so very impressive for you to take on. Please continue talking about it. Yeah, um, I worked for UMS, University Musical Society in Ann Arbor, uh, which is a performing arts organization in the marketing department. So I had had, you know, an arts administration background at a very well-known, very successful company. Um, And so I was kind of just interested in the marketing portion. And he basically, I mean, there was like 200 comments on the post. And he reached out to everyone individually and just kind of you know, wanted to hear what they were interested in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this I person you're talking to... about, is this mm-hmm. Jeffrey DiGiorgio? Yes, yes, yes. I don't know if I said his name right. I think you it's said it right. Yeah, DiGiorgio. Yeah. No, it's Jeffrey. You're right. Oh, it's Jeffrey. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, I, he was, he said I was the only one he talked to that didn't talk about myself or how yeah. I, you know, the company could forward what I was looking for in my life, in my Mm. performance career. A lot of people were more interested in, which is fair, you know, what shows would be done, would they be able to sing? And I I just wanted to do something that wasn't singing. I love arts administration. That's where the change happens. The change doesn't happen on stage. Exactly. You know, like, fire shut up in my bones. Who chose? I mean, it wasn't Terrence Blanchard didn't choose for it to go there. It's part of the reason that it's taken so long for a lot of these things to happen is because up until this year, people of color, LGBT people have not been Mm -hmm. on the administrative boards in these rooms making decisions. So arts administration arguably is the most important thing when it comes Mm -hmm. to these sorts of shifts. Yeah. And and also through starting that work in arts administration, because I've been involved with the UMS all four of my years at Michigan, I found out that there's like 
arts administrators of color and there's one for specifically women in mm. arts administration um and also sphinx does a lot of that as well yeah and i was like oh there's there's like a whole community of people that are fighting for this change on the on the opposite end and i don't know i mean I, I wanted to do something, I don't want to say fulfilling for myself, but I actually, like, I want to help make change and I want to help uplift other people who are not as, not in the same position that I am where they speak out. Mm. Um, that was a big thing I learned throughout Michigan that I'm grateful, you know, for to my black mentors who taught me that it's okay to speak out and have a voice not everyone came from the same background, you know? And like when I came to CCM, like I let people know how I feel about like what is programmed for the year and the fact that it's all white repertoire. Um, I know I this is very fact. I know this for a fact because you, even after graduating from the University of Michigan, have been in these conversations that I have also been yes. in, uh, <laughs> talking where they, they've been, you know, brainstorming how can we create change in this community. And I think it's very nice of you, very kind of you and compassionate to stay on even for a little bit just to offer your experience and your learned wisdom from this, from being in this community on what you want to see come out of it. It shows that you do care about mm -hmm. the communities that you're a part of. I think that really says something about you. Yeah, I want, you know, I want other people to have a better experience than I did. I want the things that I saw in my education that could be fixed to be fixed, you know? And I mean, we're not gonna see change in the industry if we don't see it at the collegiate level, which uh -huh. that's kind of ties into another project that I'm looking at right now, but what's happening at these conservatories and in these young artist programs that is driving out marginalized singers. Right. And so that was kind of, you know, my biggest thing with Opera Next Gen that I was talking about is I want to utilize the hardships and experience I have faced and push that agenda. How do we, but on both ends, you know, with composers as well, but how do we have a company that's truly inclusive or as you know as inclusive as we possibly can be because i don't want to say truly you know i don't want to you know that, but that at least strives to be an inclusive space yeah yeah and so when jeff asked if i wanted to be ceo um i was shocked i, I what mean, does I, your role as ceo entail like what do you what do you guys have as an idea of what's coming up at least a broad thing because it is very new Yes. Yeah. So a lot, I mean, I can't say a ton, right. um, but we are doing, you know, a production. Um, we do have fundraising events coming up. We're doing educational events. We're doing, you know, webinars, masterclasses. Um, I mean, this is looking way ahead, but we want to do a competition in the future. This idea of virtual stuff is not going to end. Um, that's kind of like a big point of this, the accessibility. Right. You shouldn't feel like if you live in some random ass city somewhere that because you can't afford to drop everything and move to New York City, like you can't do this. Right. Because you can't afford to pay an arm and a leg to go to a fancy conservatory that you can't do this. Right. We are focusing on 
the talent that's not being utilized because people aren't being led into auditions because they don't have these fancy schools because they don't look a certain way. You know, we're, we're trying to go back to what opera used to be, which was focusing on vocal ability, but how then does one ensure that it has to be that someone like myself is in that position where I'm overseeing everything and just making it so clear and pushing and challenging myself because, you know, I look at things like I'm an ableist. So like, how do we make sure, you know what I mean? I'm cis. How do I make sure that this is a welcoming environment for groups that I'm not a part of that are also booted out of this industry? Right. I really just got chills as you were talking about that because, you know, I think it is more compelling than I, I'm more interested in this. I mean, I, I, I love you. I think you're great as a person in general. I'm always going to support the things that you are a part of because I think that you have a really clear vision um, about when, and you're very discerning when it comes to being a part of these sorts of things. At the same time, I really uh, think that it's just like necessary that someone not only who is mixed race and black, but also, you know, um, a person of this generation, this upcoming generation that mm-hmm. really, you know, in a lot of ways is very jaded by the way that society has treated our parents and, you know, over history learning and constantly being, you know, inundated with the information of how awful the world can be. Having mm-hmm. somebody who really knows that feeling, but also, you were also in a similar age group as me. We're like, what, one year apart? Where it's like, you also have a pretty decent understanding of, you know, uh, what came before. And blending those two worlds together, I think that is super important and necessary. And I think that is a boon to Opera Next Gen in a way that you know a lot of other opera companies or up-and-coming art projects don't have mm-hmm. and i'm very excited and interested to see how you guys navigate in the future and i will be supporting every venture as much as i possibly can yeah. of course uh, so <laughs> let me know if anything comes up but i will definitely uh promote it as much as my limited platform can thank you yeah it's it's you know it's interesting because being realistic um it's a big undertaking and a lot of the reason these companies are so conservative is because donors the people with money have a certain expectation um Mm -hmm. and so far so good we have not you know had issues um financially um but we still you know we're still gonna keep doing that Right. Whether people kind of support it or not, like like what you said, it's for this generation. It's for the people right now. Um, and and I think it's a good push ahead as well. That's a conversation we had at Chautauqua is like a lot of people didn't like that the festival was virtual. Like they thought it just should have been canceled, like a lot of audience members. And I don't see why not like why can't we keep this going like opera next gen is not just a temporary like it's gonna fold after the pandemic like we fully intend to keep this going because there are still gonna be people who need this right you know now and later and for as i mean i'll keep it going for as long as i can um and maybe one day sure that'd be great in 10 years 
if we can have a permanent place of residence. But right. that's also another reason that companies fold is trying to hold these spaces. Um, and so it is can... pretty, um, it is financially mm -hmm. a pretty decent idea to have a completely like a sort of virtual space in which you organize uh, because of how expensive it can be to hold down an opera theater and all the staffing that inc that includes keeping that up every year mm -hmm. when you only have such a limited season or whatever the case may be or you're only basing things off of donations or whatever yeah. that is financially realistically yeah it, it is it is quite the undertaking um pretty risky but also you know why not i mean like yeah, i yeah that's like kind of I, <laughs> I think it's a good idea i think you know a lot of people these this summer have started various projects mm -hmm. you know some of them of course like everything some of them are going to fold some of them are going to stick around that's mm -hmm. the way the world works mm -hmm. however you know it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to do it with all that you can you know uh there's Oh, I am. It is slipping from my mind right now. There, there's a friend of mine who started a program recently that Lift Music Fund. That's what it's called, right. and they do micro grants to help uh, uh, musicians under, I think, the age of like 20 or like young people uh, be have accessibility to music and the study of music and the mm -hmm. the, the uh, events that come along with that and so they offer grants to various students of music from like ages like young ages like 10 11 12 mm -hmm. up until like age 20 and they've recently you know a, a lot of people align with that mission and people will come out if as long as your mission is strong and clear and has a vision of trajectory then people mm. will support it and those people will be there and be loyal to that mission, you know? So, yeah. you know, as much as the donors of other places are loyal to those places because they support the mission of those places, it's, it's the same sort of concept. So if that can be established, I think that you guys are off to a pretty decent start in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, and it, I, you know, I was worried about it too, just because I didn't, I don't think I'm very qualified uh, to run a nonprofit, and now I'm running two. Um, What's the second? I'll mention that in a second. <laughs> um, like, wait but, a know, second. <laughs> did you mention this to me? You probably did. I think I, I put it in the email. It's a little bit further along now, so I can talk about it a little more. Um, okay. But it was... I was worried when we were working for like a couple months behind the scenes. I mean, we have a great team and a lot of, I mean, we have like 30 people involved behind the scenes, but I was worried until it actually, ha it didn't feel real until we actually launched. Mm. And then we actually started hearing from people and it made me feel very hopeful that we got a lot of messages from people of color who were so happy to see that a woman of color was leading this knowing that it wasn't, you know, an operation led by white people who were saying that they believe in inclusion and diversity, but it was someone who has faced that themselves, who is saying that, like, I mean, I really have like a no tolerance policy that I make very clear to my team that I don't play that game. Like, it's and I know you and I very much appreciate that. I very much appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> 
Well, because it just, you know, you see so many, I mean, we just hear the craziest stories um, about what happens in these institutions and in these young artist programs. And it's like, why is no one saying anything about it? And then why are young artists being ridiculed for speaking out about it? Like, we can't have a space like that. That's not, you know, but I've just found from that that people are happier to do this work. You know, I mean, everyone's working for free. Like, we don't get paid. Like, that's, I don't know if that's ever going to be a realistic thing, but how do you hold on to people and get them to do the work? You know, they have to like really believe in the mission and it's, it's just been something I've been trying to make sure that everyone really feels like they're a part of it. Cause it wouldn't happen without every single individual on this team. And I still cannot believe, you know, a little emotional, but I still cannot believe that people have believed in me enough as a leader to follow me through this, something that could have been a failure, something that still could be a failure. Um, Cause it, it was stressful. Cause I felt like if it didn't do well, that it would fall on me. But to know that all of these people are like, everything that you're trying to do is what needs to be done. And that is saying enough, you know, that, it, that must be through, very validating and affirming for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we get through one production and it's good, then I'll take it. We did what we need to do. We have great plans for this year. I think it's going to be a great year. I think it can continue. I hope it does. Um, but if it doesn't, you know, I will be able to at least look back and be like, you know what? That was good. That was a good start. Like, I, you know, we started a nonprofit from the ground up. So it just still, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the second one. Um, so <laughs> this kind of stemmed from musicology. Mm. Um, we got in a very heated, well, this, I got in a very I heated. I believe is the research project you mentioned. Yes. So, okay. I'm trying a to heated what I'm a very heated excited discussion. Yeah. Okay. So I know technically we are over time, but I love this and I, I mean, okay. I'm okay to keep going if you are, please keep going. Okay. So this kind of started, um, this summer, I was asked um, to be a part of like an anti-racist proposal that was being written to Michigan hmm. um, that I kind of upheavaled, to say the least. Um, <laughs> it was white-led, um, and while they had all the right intentions, that's not how you know this kind of thing has to be done. Um, and so then it was just led by black women, um, and that you know, has kind of turned into like a task force and ongoing thing where we're having these meetings and having these discussions. We had a music meeting with the musicology and theory department um, on Tuesday. We're having a meeting, you know, with other studio departments. How can we make, you know, these changes? Changes like why um, are there listing examples of minstrel songs in the um, history of American music class that all of the freshmen have to take? ridiculous truly but why, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but then why in turn are you know we focusing on that more than we focus on black classical music things like that have got me you know so i'm really popping out a lot of uh a lot of knowledge and i want to dig deeper so i'm looking through the archives from the year 2000 to 2020 uh the recital archives of all students guests um and faculty recitals looking at who did repertoire by marginalized composers, who did repertoire by specifically black composers, were the people that performed those works marginalized and did they study with a marginalized teacher? Um, that was just something I was doing on my own and then it 
kind of looped into my musicology class because we had to do a project about protest. Um, it was more protest performance, but I wanted to loop it in like, we're always, you know, like I was saying, we're always so focused on performance and what's happening on stage, but we're not looking at what's happening off stage. And we we had a very heated discussion about Bogner one day in that class. Oh um, Lord. Which is a weird thing, you know, as someone who is Jewish, who also has a large instrument, who gets all the time like, you're a Wagnerian soprano. You're going to be a Wagnerian soprano. When are you starting singing? You know, when are you going to sing Ring Cycle? Um, and just like that people don't realize how damaging that is to be labeled with someone's name in front of my own, who is evil. I mean, he was evil. Good music it's a, or it's not. It's incredible what gets excused in the name of comfort or, you know, in the name yeah. of not shaking the table. Because mm. Wagner, if you don't know, is such a huge name. I mean, most people are familiar with his work from the Valkyrie or whatever the case may be, you know. Um, but he was a noted anti-Semite. Um, like, and when I say noted, I mean very much he wrote so. Publications on, I mean this, yeah. I mean, he was Hitler before Hitler, really. Um, and just kind of that whole idea about how we're focusing focusing so much on do we sing Wagner or not, or how do we sing Wagner, and not enough like what we were talking about earlier on what what why why aren't we focusing on things we should be doing instead? And I was just expressing how disappointed I am in CCM that we are not doing any works by non-white or women composers this entire year. Not the choral department, not the opera department, you know, like I feel unseen. I feel un I had conversations with these departments. And, and that I is such a, that I, I felt that very deeply because it's, it's so familiar to me when I was at mm -hmm. UGA, just constantly feeling like I was running, like uh, charging uphill um, and the hill kept getting taller, yeah, you know? Yeah. And sometimes it can really, when you're a person of color who also holds so many different identities and so many, an intersectional experience that is very unique and others you from your colleagues and your peers it can really be so isolating especially when in this particular social climate mm -hmm. uh an administration would make the choice then uh to not program that sort of stuff despite all of the 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 the, the, the zeitgeist it's mm -hmm. it's honestly it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of things to say. like. I it's usually honestly, you know, you know, uh, Einstein's definition of insanity: doing the same thing over and over again, mm -hmm. expecting different results. It's it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that you know, I really had a lot of things to say, um, and went a little off the rail. I mean, I say that, but that's one of those things where I finally just didn't edit what I needed to say. Well, what I've noticed about you is you have a fearlessness about you that I relate to, mm -hmm. but I also relate to that feeling where you have to edit that to be heard mm -hmm. when that's not necessarily always true. Mm -hmm. um, especially in these areas where you have the opportunity to speak up and really say something that no one else is saying. 
-hmm. what you've been feeling and what you know is true. But a lot mm -hmm. of the times we feel like, oh, we cannot shake it up that much, you know? Yeah. I feel yeah. like, you know, putting that discomfort in the room is necessary. I think white people should be uncomfortable more often. Um, yeah. especially white people in positions mm. of authority or power, especially mm. white people in positions of authority and power in the educational system who are teaching p ch students of color. It, yeah. You should be uncomfortable more often with the choices that you're making that directly affect and impact your students. Um, and so if it went off the rails, it's probably for very good reasons. It might have mm. gone off the rails for them, but you said probably... I. I wasn't in the room, but mm. I making an assumption off of how I know you to be and what I know you to be passionate about. I wouldn't be surprised if you just said something that was true and yeah. especially true to you and true mm. to you as a person who holds so many identities that are impacted by the statements, you know, it would. No, and that's what I, I go on. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. Please continue. No, I was just, that's what I finally learned about, I mean, just speaking out in general. Like, I'm I'm doing nothing wrong by saying that my institution has failed me because that's how I feel. And it's valid because of, you can just look. You know, I'm not making this up. Like, to not do any repertoire by marginalized composers, what does that say to your five, you know, the five black people in the program? Um and so I actually got a lot of really good feedback from colleagues in that, it was on Zoom, you know, colleagues in that class who messaged me after, emailed me after, um, one of which was um, a student named Harry Cecil, who is the only um, black person in the choral conducting department. He's a DMA. And he just said, you know, would you be interested in, and I I've talked to him a couple times before just because you know only black people in the class we've touched base yeah I mean it's um, black you, it's, we're together we're together yeah, even when we yeah. don't like each other we're together yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and he said you know how would you feel about doing like a vocal ensemble um that only performs works by marginalized composers and so we set up a phone call um, to kind of talk through this. Um, and originally, you know, it was gonna, we were gonna do it as a CCM organization. And we just decided like, no, we're just gonna do it on our own um, because that's the only way we can ensure that it stays true to the mission even after we graduate. And so it's in the very early works. Um, I just actually, yesterday applied for a nonprofit registration. Um, but it will be a ensemble that is vocal right now, but we want to expand into instrumental, of course, when it's safe and we can start meeting again. Right. That only, that is a Cincinnati area ensemble that only performs works by marginalized composers that is led by marginalized people. Which is a distinct difference than a group that performs music by uh, marginalized people, led by people who don't represent the art that they, it, the, inform, the informing of the art comes from people who understand the art. Exactly. Understand yeah. the context without it all having to be um, spelled out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way too we can ensure that no one tries to take the easy way out, you know, and kind of similar to that thing. Um, I mean, not unfortunately, but you know, 
the reality is it's going to be majority white because mm. most of the singers here are white. That's fine. But then this is a great opportunity for them to learn and them to be uncomfortable in the space. And they need to step up and do the work. Yeah. This is, you know, we're handing it to them. And we're it is very difficult. I was in an ensemble at the University of Georgia, the African-American mm. Choral Ensemble, which mm. was an official choir under the University mm. of Georgia. Okay. It was often predominantly white, and it was led by a black director who was my voice teacher, and in all honesty, is quite the jaded individual when it comes to uh, race relations yes, at the school. Before, yes. <laughs> He's been working there for like 21 years. Yeah. But you know, he has a lot of passion for this work, and he, creates he sets a precedent in that class in that ensemble from the get-go that this music yes is for everybody but you have to respect it mm-hmm. you can't you and disrespect of the art and of the music and of the context of the art can come in a lot of different forms but as a person who does not come from these contexts you must sing it disrespect can be as if a disrespect of the art can also it doesn't necessarily mean oh i don't like that Mm -hmm. but it also can be oh i feel uncomfortable so i'm just gonna do it this way you know or i feel uncomfortable so i i don't know if i can blah 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 blah. just putting yourself out there and really respecting the people who are standing in front of you who who know about this art i think that's having that authority and that control over those Mm -hmm. sorts of situations is a lot it's a lot of work but it is um worth it i think yeah and that was a big reason why we chose to not go the school affiliated route because then we can kind of do with it what we want yeah um and you know i'm serving as executive director and that doesn't have to stop when i graduate and this is another one of those projects you know thinking ahead but like it would be great to start doing some outreach stuff like when you know it's safer to start you know, going places, but also, you know, getting in schools, starting even a youth program through the ensemble and getting like a lot of the kids in underserved areas like around here singing this repertoire because there, there are no places like that here. Um, since I wish that was something that I had growing mm-hmm. up. People are always like, how did you get into opera? And I'm like, sometimes I don't even know. <laughs> wondering like how I got here too (laughs) and you know there's so many people that I've met over the years who are in who came from a similar background as we who have the talent have the ability and honestly could also have the passion if only they were giving the outlet so at any rate we do have to I would I could talk I could talk to you forever (laughs) about this topic and many others um but we do have to wrap it up because uh like yeah no it's not it's not honestly that bad i think this was one of my most i mean i I just enjoy talking to you so it was nice to just chat with you about what you have going on you are like crazy busy my friend i hope that you take one of the main messages of my podcast which is rest as productivity and as resistance please find moments and pockets to take care of yourself and to you know heal your soul when you are out there saving the world um we love you and we so appreciate everything that you're doing i hope that everybody here will look into what miss jamie sharp has going on um and that we have mentioned in this episode i will link below um operanextgym.org 
um, in the description of the video and in the uh, description, the, the, the podcast notes. So please check there for that information. Uh, Jamie, can you tell us where we can find you? Um, so I'm not cool enough to have a website yet. Uh, <laughs> um, no, it's okay. Just- I, I mean, I have a website, but I never link it. So. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, just my Instagram is at Jamie Sharp, J-A-I-M-E-S-H-A-R-P. Wonderful. And I hope that everybody goes and gives her a follow. We are a small but mighty community here at Thorn and (laughs) Thistle. Uh, Thank you yet again for coming on to the show. And thank you, everybody that's listening. We're going to just wrap from here. Um, Yeah. So thank you. Cool. Thank you. Wasn't that awesome? I just am so grateful to Jamie for taking that time out to come and have a conversation with me about her projects and things in this industry. I'm so happy that we had such an engaging conversation. I hope that you all got something out of it. And if you did, please let me know. You can reach me on Instagram at my underscore O-H underscore M-Y-A-H. That's my Omaya on Instagram. And you can also find us at Thorn and Thistle Pod on YouTube. You can also leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and a five-star rating. If you're listening anywhere else, make sure that you follow and subscribe to the podcast for more content. You can also go back through our log of episodes now since June. Now we have a few more episodes under the belt and there's plenty of stuff to listen to and get into and plenty of conversations to dive into together. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Bye.